Desanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And we've reached Kurosawa's first color film, Dodeskaden, from 1970. Yes, high and low. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> just low. Oh, yeah, just low. In fact, it's the lower depths in the style of Tampopo, a movie that wouldn't <laughs> come out for 15 years. Oh, my God. The lower depth, certainly. Tampopo didn't cross my mind, but now I can really see it. Yeah, we'll talk about it. It's very weird. Oh, yeah. Real weird. I think we're going to be talking about what might be Kurosawa's most experimental film. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I don't know what's coming, but it's the most experimental I've seen. It's as experimental as Sincero Sugata too, but I think on purpose this time. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> the title Dodeska then is weird because it's a Japanese automatopoeia for clickety-clack which is how they hear like the sound of an approaching streetcar as coined by the author. But the weird thing about that is that there already is in the Japanese vernacular a trolley automatic pia, and it's gatan goton, gatan goton, which is like, so why did he come up with his own <laughs> if it already existed? That's authorship, baby. I just thought it was a word until the first scene of the movie, and I was like, oh, that's what that is. I like it as an automatopoeia. It's cool, and I, the way it's used in the movie actually is one of the, I think, stronger things in the movie. It just looks so wild with, like, you know, apostrophe in the middle and then a hyphenation at the end, but I assume that's just, like, translation. I'm glad they don't actually refer to this movie as clickety-clack. Yeah. That would, I mean, <laughs> honestly, this movie has the vibes of a movie called clickety-clack, kind of, but, uh, yeah, Dodeska then is a better title. A lot to get into with this one, even though it's not one that a lot of people typically go to. It's one of his lesser-seen films, despite being a first in many different ways. It's based on Shigeru Yamamoto's The Town Without Seasons, who is an author he's already adapted in the past, Redbeard. Oh, wow. It is wild that it is adapted from the same author as Redbeard. And something that really surprised me, because I didn't think this was going to happen, Kurosawa's first film not in widescreen since The Hidden Fortress. It's certainly not. I guess that makes sense for the way it is. I mean, this one's very low budget compared to a lot of other Kurosawa, so maybe it just wasn't a practicality. Like, it just wasn't feasible with the budget he had. But also, like, there's not very many landscapes or anything. It's almost entirely, like, mid-distance, indoor, or close-up. We'll get into it, because a lot of this I felt like I was watching, like, a TV movie. Kurosawa's kind of in a weird place when he was making this, so this is, like, the biggest gap in films that we've gotten. Yeah, five years. It was, like, one movie every year, basically. Sometimes two. And the reason is because there were a couple different projects Kurosawa was involved in that didn't come to fruition, mainly because he was working with 20th Century Fox. Kurosawa was having a lot of trouble getting funding in Japan. He was getting older. There were new generations of filmmakers coming up. His films were always very expensive. And so he was originally going to try and shoot a script of his called The Runaway Train, and he was actually scouting locations in the United States. That would have been so cool. Damn. The film actually did eventually get made in 1985 by Andrei Konchalovsky. So that was a project that it was like almost going to happen, but then things got delayed, like weather stuff, just things weren't right. And then he was hired to do the Japanese half of the World War II epic Tora Tora Tora, which did eventually get made, but not with Kurosawa at the helm. As you can imagine, Kurosawa does not work well in the American studio system. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's fun for him. He's a man who likes control, and the American studio system is one that does not like to give it. Several producers found dead <laughs> after interaction with Kurosawa. <laughs> there were just so many issues with this. Kurosawa is difficult to work with for them. They're very difficult to work with for him. There was a big lie involved on 20th Century Fox's part 
because they said that the American director was David Lean, the director of Lawrence of Arabia. So someone of a comparable stature to Kurosawa, you know, because otherwise, if you're going to have an amazing director and a subpar director do opposite parts of the same movie, it's going to create an even bigger shift between it. Yeah, and Kurosawa deserves to work with someone like David Lean. Absolutely, yes. And instead, they actually hired Richard Fleischer, who does not make good movies like that because you probably don't know his name. <laughs> no, it's a little familiar, maybe, but I don't know. Yeah, he's made things like, I think, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and things like that, but certainly no Kurosawa. He never made anything like Lawrence of Arabia, certainly. Oh, he made Southern Green, which is actually a really good movie, but not at all the kind of thing that Kurosawa was making. Um, and he would make that after this time period. So that was a big point of contention because Kurosawa, you know, thought David Lean's demands would be similar to his. So the two of them together might be able to get the studio to give them more of what they would want. But that wasn't the case. There was just such a headache that Kurosawa then was essentially kind of forced to sabotage his own work so he'd be fired. Otherwise, he'd have contractual responsibility and liability for like losses. That's really interesting. Jeez, that's like a sitcom bit or something. Yeah, well, like they want him to, you know, shoot things on a schedule and he usually does days of rehearsals and doesn't even shoot anything. They expect you to have footage shot in the can every day, things like that. It just isn't how Kurosawa works. Fox claimed that Kurosawa resigned for health reasons, so then Kurosawa had a press conference where he brought doctors to show that he was actually healthy, but then Fox brought in their own doctors to say that he wasn't. <laughs> like, it was a huge, scandalous fiasco, and it was such a headache, and clearly not the kind of thing that he likes to work with. Do you know, like, around what time this is? This was years of Kurosawa's life doing this kind of stuff, and it just wound up with nothing at the end. I haven't seen Tora Tora Tora. I would like to, but from what I hear, it's not that great. Nothing that Kurosawa wrote reportedly is in the movie and nothing that he shot is in the movie. So that is like, unfortunately, some footage of his that has been shot and we do not see and I don't even know if it exists. So now Kurosawa is kind of back demoralized, a little rusty. A couple of famous directors from his era, Masaki Kobayashi, Konichikawa and Keisuke Kinoshita, they all combined together to form their own little group to produce films together in this kind of evolving cinematic landscape of Japan. And they weren't able to get too much money for Kurosawa to make this movie. So there's a lot of reasons that we kind of have the movie that we do here, which really, I mean, does not feel like a lot of what we've gotten. It covers a lot of similar subject matter, but in terms of shooting, coming off of Redbeard, it's wild. Well, it's just like, he's not even like attempting the same thing at all. It just, like, isn't a story. It's just, like, vignettes or whatever that are intercut to form the length of a movie. I definitely think that this film that is most similar to this is The Lower Depths, as we kind of mentioned already, in the way that it's more about being in a place and having poor people kind of have their tales. Yeah, that one also is, like, similarly not as narratively driven. But unlike The Lower Depths, there isn't anything really driving the plot. There's no, like, person that shows up that everyone talks to. It's very not connected. So it's going to be kind of weird to talk about. Toshiro Mifune and that one old guy, they kind of like form like the core of the lower depths. Like those are the two that I think about among like a cast of characters. There's no one really here that stands out. They're all pretty much given more or less equal time. Like a few seem more important, but only barely. They don't really have much more time. Or if they do, their narrative isn't going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of the main characters in this movie that never see each other, never interact, and that's not what the Lower Depths was. Lower Depths had a lot of little things, but they were all in the same place. This is kind of the opposite, which I think is interesting. The movie that this also reminds me a lot about that we haven't seen yet is Dreams, which is, 
I think, eight short stories, but they're like one after the other after the other. This is like if Dreams was intercut with all of the stories together, and the time that we cut from one to the other is completely arbitrary. Or, upon closer inspection, there probably is more of a thematic reason to go from one to the other, but in watching it, it does feel like, okay, now we're just gonna go over here. We have like eight different stories to go through, so why not check in with these people now? It's not obvious. So I guess we'll just read kind of like a one-line description of each of the stories. Dodeska Den follows the lives of the inhabitants of a Japanese shantytown. Mr. Tama is a respected craftsman who acts as a mediator for local issues, such as a drunk man harassing people with a katana, giving money to a thief who breaks into his home, and providing a suicidal man with fake poison to make him realize he should continue living. Katsuke is an overworked teenage girl who is raped by her alcoholic uncle and proceeds to stab a kind delivery boy. Royotaro is a hairbrush maker who asserts to the many illegitimate children of his wife that he is their father if they believe he is. Hei is a silent old man who cannot forgive his wife for her affair and ignores her as she begs forgiveness. Mr. Shima is a businessman with a tick and a mean wife whom he defends to his co-workers since she has always been by his side. A pair of drunken day laborers partake in a constant wife swapping. A homeless father and his son fantasize about the creation of their dream home until the child dies of food poisoning. The film is bookended by Roku-chan, a mentally challenged boy who drives an imaginary trolley up and down his established route. I guess, I, I mean, which, which story do you want to start with first? Some of them intermingle. Well, the first story that we see is the story of this kid, this kid and his mother. And this is the kid from Redbeard, Chobo, grown up. Oh, it is. Oh, he's such a good actor. It's been a while. It is the same kid, and he will come into a couple different roles in the future. The kid wants to be a trolley conductor. He might have a mental disability or not. It's not clear. They don't explicitly say it, but I definitely think he is played up to be mentally challenged from the way that he acts, the concern of his mother when, you know, he sees her praying a lot and he says like, oh, please make my mom less dumb. And you can tell like it's clearly actually the other way around where that's definitely what the mother is praying for. He spends all his time on a fake trolley route. I do really like the sound design when it comes to that, though. This is another experimental part. It's all pantomime, and he, like, does a very thorough walkthrough of how the trolley works and stuff. Every switch that he flips, everything that he pulls or button that he presses, it all has a corresponding sound effect. And then he's moving down his imaginary track going, That was cool. That's how you know that it's going to be a weird movie from the beginning. <laughs> it never gets funnier than when there's some random painter that we only see once and never see again in the guy's quote-unquote track. And the kid's just like, ah! And he screams at him. He screams, I think, And the guy gets out of the way, and he's like, you absolute idiot! Don't you know you could have gotten yourself killed doing that? You what can't are you doing on, on the, the tracks? tracks? What are you doing? It's just like a dirt path. <laughs> His commitment to the bit rules. He could probably have gotten annoying, but we're given such a little time with him that I think he works great. He's a lovely little way to, like, open and close and ride throughout the film. Yeah, he's one of the images I know from the film, not knowing much about it. I thought it was all going to be about him, and then it turned out to not be. Well, you'd think based on the title. It's actually hardly about him at all. He has very little screen time compared to some of the other stories. I was definitely thinking of the Twitter bit of having the film's title in the dialogue, and I was like, this one takes the cake. <laughs> it's just the kid only says the film's title, and he says it over and over and over again. <laughs> But yeah, that's a cool little, I mean, there's not really much to say about that story other than what we said. He lives with his mother. They're very poor. His whole house is covered in these drawings of trains that are presumably all done by him. And they like cover all the windows and stuff. And like light comes through with the colors of the train drawings because of that. That was very cool, like cool design. 
You know what's funny about those drawings? Kurosawa reached out to a bunch of schools to get kids drawings, like, of trolley cars and things. They got thousands of them, and then they used none of them and had their art department base their own drawings of them off of the drawings of the children. I'm like, why are you faking the real thing? You've got real kids drawing the drawings. Why would you then have to have adults replicate the style of the children? Because <laughs> Kurosawa's a maniac, that's why. I was thinking, these do not all seem like they are made by one guy. The one kid wouldn't have such disparate styles. <laughs> this kid's like an artistic genius. He's represented a train in four billion different ways. That's amazing. <laughs> and something that happens really randomly in the middle, because like, again, we, we see him in the beginning, the end, and we get brief glimpses of him. Like sometimes we see kids throwing stuff at him. They make fun of him. They bully him. There's one crazy part where it's tracking with him, but it's not the normal background around him. It's paintings. Of like the sun and things it, it's really crazy and out of nowhere and that's something that kurosawa will do every once in a while in this movie it's very interesting it's a really interesting way to use color for the first time yeah he really goes all out in the color more or less like there are characters that are color coordinated with their environment some characters look like dead because he's able to make them like green and yeah he does that weird thing where like the background becomes painting but it's never clear why Maybe, like, there's an interpretation, but it happens a few times. And not only with him. And it's not always there. It's not consistently part of, like, the backdrop of this shantytown, which... This shantytown is weird. I don't really have any clue when we are or where we are. In other movies, he, like, very deliberately gives you a sense of space. Like, in Redbeard, the movie opens with an entire scene where he's like, this is here, it's next to this, and then this is here. This movie, like, deliberately doesn't let you know where anything is by never showing you, like, one to the next. It's like there's the town center with the two husbands and wives and then other stuff elsewhere. <laughs> and it's really unclear where anything is. This is a movie of, damn, bro, you live like this? There are random parts where, yeah, we will get like a colored backdrop or something. But then like we'll have other scenes there where that's not the case. And I think that it's kind of like Kurosawa using the way that he uses weather. Now he's using it with color for the first time or at least playing with it. I could see that. I think that it's very cool for a more experimental film from a guy who was always a little bit experimental when compared to his contemporaries, but certainly I wouldn't call him an experimental filmmaker. I would just say that he wears his influences more on his sleeve than other people do. And like there have been movies with fairly experimental scenes like Drunken Angel where he's like in the crate. He's like in his own coffin and he cuts himself out of it on the beach. Yeah, that was like really crazy, but it was like one scene. It wasn't the whole movie. Like the whole movie didn't have that feel. And I think it's interesting to present an image that looks so artificial. Kage Musha is going to have one scene that's a lot like this, but it's specifically a dream. It's not real life, and the rest of the movie doesn't look like it. The scenes where the sky becomes a painting are presumably not dreams based on the way they're set up. They're just stuff that's happening. There's certainly parts where there are hallucinations, but I don't doubt the reality of any situation. Especially in some of the scenes that it pops up, they're very serious and definitely happening. I think the time that Kurosawa uses the most paint is when we have the homeless father and son. As you said before, they're like painted green. They look really crazy. They are like sleeping in like a very colorful car. Yeah, they're in like a broken down beetle in the background. Like the whole wall is like painted strange and whatever. This guy is probably the most illusion versus reality of the whole movie that's full of it, with this man really completely detached from reality and constantly seeing an imaginary house that he wants to build, which looks really strange. It almost looks like CGI, like early 90s CGI imagery, but in 1970. Yeah, it looks insane. There's other computer kind of effects. Like, like in some Tarkovsky films, sometimes they'll try and do something and it'll kind of look like that for some reason. I don't know why that is, but like even the design is weird. 
Yeah, I don't know how to describe the design. The house is like, not modernist, it's like cubes. It's like cubes that are stacked on top of each other, but they have rounded corners. Like very like space agey. It's very, very, very odd. Especially because he's like, he's so weird. He's like implied to be knowledgeable, but he might be faking all of it. But he always talks as though he knows. He's like, oh, I want a French style gate. No, not a French style gate. That's too fancy. I want an English gate. No, that's a bit much. Maybe like or whatever. Later, the house is there and it looks insane. <laughs> like it doesn't look like anything. There's like a light shining out of it and it's like all red and stuff. Yeah, and there's, like, stuff in the foreground, like a briar. I think there must be a scene missing where that happens. I don't know. The way this movie is, it, when things just suddenly happen, I'm like, okay. I bet there's a scene where he's like, oh, we'll make the house look like this, and then you see it, and then it just got cut for time, is my guess. But I don't know. And we'll never know. Oh, I, I don't know about cut for time. This movie is incredibly long. I know, but even he has his limits. It's two hours, 24 minutes, or whatever. It's really long. It feels like it's an hour longer than Lower Depths. It's not, but it, it certainly feels that way, even though it's very similar. It's very hard to stay in this movie when there's nothing really hooking me as much. I do think the film becomes more engaging as it goes, as I get to know everybody better, and I start to understand everything better. And, like, my initial confusion about what the film is is gone, because it's, again, so different from most of the movies that we watch. But I, I think the stories vary in quality and engagement, certainly, and some of them have much more attention than others. It's not very balanced. Yeah, I agree. No, there's certainly scenes where I was like almost falling asleep, and there's scenes where I was like really interested. I think that the film is tonally very weird. There's parts where it's so lighthearted and parts where it's so depressing, and the way that it flips between them is... I mean, I guess it really is like a Kurosawa statement on life. You could find any emotion that you're looking for in this movie. That's true, but that's not a good movie experience. <laughs> the tone felt... Not to bring it up again, but like a little bit like Tempopo, where just like crazy things will happen or suddenly you're with different characters who you don't know. And it's just happening. It has the like weird disjointed feel that like some of Tempopo has, but without the story in the middle. It's like all the intercalary stuff in Tempopo yeah, yeah. <laughs> without any of like the actual main narrative. Yeah, it's like just the food porn scenes. Yeah. <laughs> he told his people, just make it pretty, make it happy, make it sunny and everything in the look of the film. And then at the same time, the story of it is so not that all the time. Yeah, some of it's very depressing. Also, like, it doesn't all look pretty. There's like varying levels of well, like there's the one guy who is doing okay. And then there's like the beggar who is like dying in, in his car. I think that the visual look of it is a little inconsistent, too. I think the beginning looks pretty bad. There was stuff when we were, like, on the fake trolley track and, like, doing, like, weird zooms and stuff. I was like, this does not feel like the very controlled guy that I'm used to behind the camera. Yeah, it does like that. The one time we do leave this shantytown is the son goes to try and get food out of restaurant kitchens that will let him beg for it. And he eventually gets food poisoning because he doesn't cook mackerel, even though he's told to, and his dad doesn't do it for him. Or Yeah, his dad, who, like, is very insistent that he knows everything, even though he probably doesn't know anything. His dad's like, oh, this is sour mackerel. It's preserved in salt. You don't have to cook this. The kid's like, I was told to cook it by the chef. And then, you know, that's how they get food poisoning, and, uh, spoiler, the kid dies. Which is also treated totally strange. It's, like, very serious for a moment, and then not. Oh, oh you mean, and then all of a sudden we're at a giant pool? Well, yeah, that too. But that's not even that. That's He dies. He, like, falls through. The guy starts screaming. He goes over to the old man. The old man's like, oh, my God. And they walk over and, then like, smash cut to the next scene, which is, like, some, like, upbeat whatever nonsense. <laughs> Eventually, he's burying the kid's ashes, and he kind of throws his arms up in the air and says something. And it does, like, a match cut that is also, like, a zoom crane shot out to, like, transport him in front of a giant pool. It's on the grassy knoll where he imagines this house to be in his, like, mind's eye. And then they cut back like nothing happened. Yeah, it's a perfect ending to that arc. 
Because the entire time, the guy's like, oh, let's look up on this hill, and we'll cut to a green hill, which isn't there. And he's always like, oh, don't you like the way this looks? And the kid's like, yeah, it looks nice, Dad. And that keeps going until finally, you know, the last thing, he's like, oh, we should get a pool, because the kid will like that. And the kid dies shortly after he thinks that, and then he gets the pool. They, like, sleep right next to the main town center, which has, like, one hose in it. And, like, despite that, they almost never interact with anyone else. Whereas that guy who's, like, dead is, like, way off in the distance, and then he's, like, constantly in the middle, and people are like, hey, what's his deal? I feel like I don't get a great sense of how all of these people live because it's like a lot of different stories are going through their full arcs in the same amount of time, but it isn't motivated by anything specifically in the same way that the wandering guy coming in the lower depths is a trigger for many emotional journeys to happen. That's missing here. There's just no center anywhere. The three stories that feel the most like a center are the Dodeskaden train kid. Because he starts, is in the middle, and is in the end. It feels like the beggar and his son are really important, but I can't really explain why. I agree, because it's a, a lot of the scenes are similar, and I, I like them. They're one of the more memorable parts of the film, but it stands to reason that every story in this movie can be summed up in a line or two. And because of the way that they're intercut, it's difficult to ascertain additional meaning out of them beyond what they are. This is a movie I felt a certain way, and once I started doing more research on it, it made me feel better about it. But it's still not the easiest to digest. or You have to have the desire to learn more about it. It certainly is like a lot of Kurosawa ideas. It's just that he's throwing them all together into like a big painting. I think the character that interacts with the most people is Mr. Tamba, the nice old man. He's really cool and I love him. Yeah, I think he's a pretty average Kurosawa archetype. The closest we can get to like, you know, the master who puts his knowledge onto other people doesn't really change. A lot of other people change in this movie. He's a rock. He's pretty constant. The notable moments that he has are calming down a drunk man, swinging around his sword and threatening people. It's just kind of like another day in the life in this awful Japanese shantytown. He asks the guy, he's like, oh, do you want me to take your place? Like, I'm sure this must get lonely on your own. And the guy's like, I can't do this anymore. And he just walks away, even though he was like threatening people with the sword. All of his stories are really good. He's asleep. A thief, quote unquote, breaks into his house, although he really just kind of opens the door. Yeah, yeah. It's not breaking and entering. It's just entering. <laughs> He, yeah, he, he's just entering when he shouldn't be. So he goes over, he takes a big box from the corner, then he's walking by and the guy starts to stir. He's like, oh, wait, no, don't take that. Those are my tools. The money's over there. You can have that. Which is an insane thing to say to a robber robbing your house. But that's just who this guy is. He's like, Mr. Too Damn Nice. I don't even know. Like, he gets up. He's like, don't put that down. I need those tools to make money here. Here's like all the money I have. And if you come back again, I'll give you more. Yeah, literally, he gives this man a promise. Like, yeah, if you come back, I will give you more money. I understand that you need it. You don't want to be doing this. That's such a nice sentiment for Kurosawa. Very humanistic. I buy it for this character. It's a very Dr. Redbeard thing, but done in a very different manner than like the gruff, angry doctor. Here's like the kind old man doing the exact same thing, and it feels a little different. Eventually, the cops catch the thief, and they're like, this is the man who robbed you. And Mr. Thomas like, I've never seen this man before in my life. He was like, yes, you did. You gave me money and told me I could have more. He's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> Get out of here. That's not from the cop. That's the robber talking, saying he's admitting guilt. He's like, I robbed you. I'm sorry. I'm going to jail. I tried to rob you, but you gave me money instead. He actually didn't rob him. It was a gift. <laughs> he's like, this robber who robbed me is innocent. <laughs> <laughs> then he has one more like major story. And this shit was nuts. This is, I think, after he gives the guy the money. But uh, he has some guy who's just in his shop complaining about how he hates his life and he wants to die. He's like, oh, you want to die? Here's a extremely potent poison that'll kill you in an hour. Just knock you clean dead with no pain. This guy takes it immediately. 
And then the guy's talking about how he misses his wife and kids. His children died in war. His wife died shortly after. And he's like, well, I can still like hear them in my dreams. He's like, oh, you must really enjoy that. Yeah. It's kind of like if you die, they'd be dying with you. The guy's like, wait, I don't want to die. <laughs> then he begs him for the cure to the poison. He's like, I don't have it. I don't have it. He's like, you're a murderer. I hate you so much, old man. And the guy's like, nah, that's just like a digestive you took. That was nothing. You'll be fine. <laughs> and then the story's over. It's crazy. I love it. It was really wild. I had a feeling that's how it was going to end. I was like, I bet this is not anything. and It's just going to be used as a lesson. But still, it was plausible. It was cool. And it's like, this is a man. I thought it was the silent man that we'd seen before. The shot is kind of far away, but then I eventually realized it's not. It's a totally new character that we see in this one scene and then we never see again. The movie's full of things like that, where it's like, huh? Why are we here all of a sudden? But then something happens and you're like, oh, that was really cool. I liked that. I just don't understand why it happened. But yeah, that was a really cool scene. And then other than that, he's the only one who approaches the beggar and says that his son should go to the doctor and the beggar says no. Then he helps bury the kid. That's basically it. I don't know. He's like around. He's just a good guy. Someone who's not a good guy is uh, Katsuke's drunk uncle. She lives with her aunt and uncle, but her aunt is currently away having surgery at a hospital, so she's just home with her drunk uncle, who literally never gets off the floor in any scene. Yeah, he never does anything at all. Like, he doesn't seem to work. She just works constantly throughout the night, stays up working. She never talks. There's one delivery boy who's nice to her and, you know, tries to, like, kind of romance her or maybe just honestly talk to her because you can tell that this girl clearly is having issues and is like suffering from constant exhaustion well what she does is she like makes flowers like fake flowers with paper and this one scene after she talks to the delivery kid and he's like you should really like get some rest she's like sleeping in her room or whatever surrounded by all these flowers and this is the scene where her uncle comes in and, and rapes her is this like the darkest kurosawa scene that we've ever gotten probably i like kept thinking it wasn't gonna happen because i was like he wouldn't do this but he does. It's not the first rape scene that we've gotten, but they're not common. It's very uncomfortable to watch this man move his hand up her thigh as high as he does, knowing, again, that it's like a daughter, even though it's his niece. It's still extremely shocking the way that it's done. And yeah, again, you don't think that it actually is going to happen because it doesn't feel like it would, because so much of this movie is just like Roku-chan saying dodeska den, dodeska den for watching a guy play with his kids. Like, compare the scene to the scene where the kid's like, ah, oh, get off the tracks, you dummy. It's like, I guess that's just the thing. It's like, yeah, life is where both of these things can happen at the same time. But it makes for a weird viewing experience. It's very uncomfortable. It's very upsetting. And the movie just goes on after that. Yeah, and eventually she winds up getting pregnant and stabbing the delivery boy, the only nice person to her. Off screen. He doesn't die, fortunately, and eventually the ant comes back, and then there's a whole police investigation that also mostly happens off screen. Yeah, and then at the very end, we get a little scene with Katsuke and the delivery boy, and he was like, by the way, why do you stab me? I don't blame you. I'm not mad about it. I just want to know. Yeah, I don't blame you. I was in a coma, but I don't blame you. Yeah, he almost died. Her answer was, oh, I, well, really, I wanted to kill myself, but I was worried that if I did, you'd forget about me, and I can't really explain it, but I, it's, I guess maybe I want to kill you too, or something along those lines. It's like a weird connection to that scene with Mr. Tamba and the suicidal man, but with characters that are unconnected, it's like maybe only one of them was necessary to get that idea across, because it's like the same idea twice. It's like the inverse or whatever. Yeah, it's the same thing but different, which is like what constantly happens. Basically, she stabs him because she loves him, in a way. So I guess all is forgiven. He's like, oh, want to get some lunch? He's like, I'm not hungry. He's like, oh, maybe later. Bye. <laughs> yeah, and then leaves. And the uncle has skipped town because the aunt definitely suspects. 
the aunt's like, oh, the police want to see you. I don't know why. And he immediately just, like, packs up and fucking bolts. Hmm. That means something. Yeah, and that really, that's her story. She's a very interesting character. She's, like, very, not, no. She's extremely quiet. She walks really slow. She's often seen in the middle of nowhere, presumably having walked for miles. I feel like even more than the homeless duo, she is the character that you just look at and evoke sympathy for. That's a really sad one. And then there's more lighthearted ones, like the two day laborers who just constantly wife swap. Yeah, yeah, the two day laborers who get drunk every day. I don't know if there's more story to that. It just kind of is a thing that constantly happens. And they're like, oh, we can't even tell the difference between our wives. Yeah, it starts, the wives are like, please don't get drunk again. I hate this. At some point, they like swap wives. And the people in town know, so like, they, they swap wives and they don't seem to give a shit at all. Like, they're happy. Then they swap back because one day the guy gets so drunk that he can't remember which house is his. <laughs> and he figures it out by taking off his headband, which matches the color of his home because his headband is yellow. And so is the home and he knows that's true. So he finally finds the yellow house. He's like, oh, this one's mine. And then he goes in. And like, his wife's like, oh, what's up? Hey, <laughs> like, I haven't seen you in weeks. And his friend comes home to the same house because he doesn't know. And then he like eventually goes back to his own home because that's just how that story works. Yeah. And like, that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's the story. I fully support everything that happens in that story. Yeah, it's like, that's it for that one. Um, moving on, I guess, because we also got Ryotaro, who is a brush maker, who is very dedicated to his craft. Reminds me a lot of, like, Gondo from High and Low, someone who, like, really meticulously cares about the things that he creates. He is married to, like, essentially the town whore, a woman who's had children with, like, every man in this town, and yet none of these men have any responsibility for the children. She keeps them all. So now he's the adopted father of five children with a sixth on the way that is presumably his, although I don't know if it's ever actually confirmed. Probably not. The point is that it doesn't matter, but yeah. And I really like this one. Something very heartwarming, like the oldest son is very sad because he's kind of learned the truth about his parentage. Yeah, people keep making fun of him. They keep telling him that his father's someone else. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, maybe you guys all have different fathers, or maybe... You can just consider me your father, and we leave it at that. If you want me to be your father, I am. If you don't, then I'm not. Yeah, he's like, no one can ever really know. And it's really sweet, actually. I think it's it's very sweet. I really, really love that character. I wish there was more of him, because it's only, like, three scenes or something of that. He has a crazy line that's like, if you ask anybody on the street, they probably don't know who their dad is. I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I guess, like, on that like, street. Yeah, maybe where they come from, that's true. But I'm like, I don't know about, like, in general, in, you know, a culture that is very much about family. Yeah, I think that's what he means. He's like, all those drunk guys who are your fathers, they don't know what the fuck's going on either. <laughs> and then there's, like, a few more, maybe, like, two, three more. Yeah, we got Mr. Shima, who's a businessman who gets laughed at because he has a really crazy tick that kind of makes him seize out. Yeah, he walks funny. He's very short. And he has, like, a weird tick where he, like, snorts for, like, ten seconds and then shuts down and then kind of gets back to normal. There's all these women in the middle of the town that are really rude to a lot of people. They like Mr. Shima, but not his wife. <laughs> I think another great illusion versus reality story here because eventually Mr. Shima brings home some friends of his from work and they're all having drinks. She is really mean to them and they're like, Mr. Shima, like, you're such a good guy. You're so nice. You don't deserve to have this awful woman living with you. Like, she doesn't deserve your kindness. And Mr. Shima flips his shit. Gets on top of the guy. He's, like, trying to beat him up. He's like, hey, my wife stood with me through, like, everything. When we had nothing, like, just water to eat. And boy, he really loves his wife, and his wife loves him. Even though she's really mean and shitty. Yeah, it's, it's kind of similar to the story with all the children. It's like, yeah, this is my chosen family, and I don't care how it looks on the outside. 
nothing else matters to me except the way that the two of us live. Relationships are private, and it doesn't have to make sense to other people. It just has to make sense to the people in it. Yeah, that's very sweet. I do think that she could still be nicer to, like, the guy's friends. Yeah, she is, like, a huge bitch for, like, no reason. Yeah, like, it still doesn't seem that great, but I understand maybe sharing a collective trauma or something. Yeah, they love each other, and she does stick with him. I mean, she seems faithful to him, as far as we can tell. Which is not the case with the silent old man who lives in, like, the house with a padlock. I was very confused by it. After reading more about it, I understood it better. Makes sense towards the end, kind of. First of all, it's the weirdest house in town. It's like stone garbage or something. It's like pretty big, actually, compared to everyone else. It looks like a Minecraft house. Yeah, it looks like a Minecraft or like a Flintstones house. Yeah. But with a door and a lock, and he's like, has probably the only lock in town. He leaves his house every day. He just kind of walks around town. Then he like cleans some silk scarves in the wash and then goes back inside. He is always looking forward. He never speaks once in the entire film. He just has this dead look in his eyes. Some guy is like, hey, good morning. And, like, it's really mad at him. He's like, hey, asshole, like, say good morning to me. He just turns around, looks at him, the guy gets scared, and then runs away. <laughs> yeah. He's a walking corpse. He's this way because his wife had an affair on him and slept with another man. And he cannot forgive her, but he also, like, won't release her from his torment. Yeah, well, his wife shows up halfway through. Yeah, she's there, miserable, crying, begging, and all this stuff, and he's just totally dead inside. And it's like, there's no room for healing for anybody here, and... He can be rid of her, but this isn't a way for this guy to live. He's just, like, there. She shows up. He doesn't say anything. He does eat the food that she gives him, which seems to make her happy, but, like, he just won't talk to her. He won't look at her. And, you know, that implies they won't forgive her for what she did, even though she apologized, feels terrible about it. And by the end, she leaves. And that's where we get the button of the story, which I think tells the whole meaning of it. She fought, She walks by a tree, and she's like, what kind of tree is this? Oh, wait, this tree is, like, dead. It's just still standing, because sometimes trees do that. I forget exactly what she says. It's something like, you know... If it's dead, it's not really the same tree. And she walks away. This isn't a tree anymore. And that's, you know, the point about him. He's still alive, but he's emotionally dead to her, if not everyone. And that's another great scene, another great moment, image. It's a whole movie full of that stuff. And yet it just feels so weird in watching. But like when you look at any one of them, except for maybe the day laborers one, because I don't feel like there's much to that one at all. That one it was just fun. It's one of my favorites, so... <laughs> Like, all the parts are very, very good. It's just, I think the whole is weaker than the sum of its parts. Yeah, you're always, like, trying to find some hook that ties it all together, but it's really not there. I mean, besides the Rodeskidan kid who shows up throughout the, the, it's just their own stories with their own purposes. Other than the fact they all live in the same area. That's, like, really it. There's certainly, you know, reminiscent stuff that we've seen in all these movies. It's another full circle movie, you know, starting and ending with the kid. It is, again, all about illusion versus reality with people's fantasies versus their real life situations, the lives that they think they lead versus the lives they actually do that we can see. But other than that, again, it, it does feel very different. Again, reflected in the way it's shot, it looks really different. Yeah, I think it looks good, but it does look very different. My favorite shot is when the beggar father is bringing the kid back to the car on his back, and it is one of those shots that has the painted backdrop to it. And it's so intense and bright. It feels very otherworldly. It feels like we are literally in a moving painting in this moment. It feels apocalyptic. I think it encompasses the way that this father feels, but in a totally surreal way that I've never seen Kurosawa do. And I don't, re again, don't really think he's going to do much more of, but I wanted to grab something that showcased this pretty unique to this movie technique of his. So I liked that one. 
I uh, unfortunately picked something that was almost identical. It's like the next scene with these two characters where they're already back at the car and the kid's like really not feeling well. And the, the father just gets out of the car and walks around for a bit. I forget what he's doing. He's just like worried or something. In my shot specifically, he's just like walking. He's in the center of the frame and the background like kind of scrolls behind him. And it's like these painted sunset bursts of cloud and like orange and yellow. He in the middle kind of almost looks like a theater actor. His face is literally blue. He has a really wild face in the first place physiologically. It feels like a like a theater scene almost, but it, it's also at the same time like very pretty. And it's kind of hard to pin down why it happens and like what it's supposed to accomplish, but it just looks really wonderful and it's a very interesting technique. Unfortunately, we are no longer doing the Toshiro Mifune hotness scale. But now we can kind of just move on to our final thoughts because overall, I feel like I might have sounded a little bit more negative about the film than I wanted to in the end. Because again, there is a lot of stuff I liked about it. I really like seeing Kurosawa be a little bit more experimental. I really like a lot of individual moments. Something I really like in this movie that we didn't talk about yet is the score. I love the score of this movie. I've actually been listening to a lot of Kurosawa music, and this is one I keep flipping on because it's very different than a lot of the other ones. It kind of reminds me more of like a Hirokazu Koreeda kind of score. It's a little folky and a lot of flute and stuff. I just really like it. I think it fits the tone of something that's sentimental and kind of upbeat and childlike, but he doesn't use that kind of thing for the more serious moments. He really lets those play in almost silence. Yeah, there's a lot of silence in, throughout the film. Yeah, I don't remember the score that much, but I remember it being nice and like fun. A lot of score when Roku-chan is on screen. Overall, I think the movie's too long, can be a little bit boring, even though it does become more engaging as it goes. I just wish there was more driving the plot. If things were just a little more connected or something that was causing things to happen instead of things just all happened to happen at the same time, then I think the movie would be stronger. For me, it winds up clocking in at like a really low 7 Originally had it at a six, and after doing more reading about it and stuff, I bumped it up because I could see more subtext and understanding about each individual thing. In watching it, it does feel exhausting and confusing, but very cool, very unique. It's not a movie I would necessarily recommend for most people. If you said, I want to see a Kurosawa movie, this would not be it. But if you're really into his filmography, you want to see him be different, it's certainly different. I feel much the same way you do. I really wasn't sure at all, ranging anywhere in my head from like a four out of five to a three out of five. I like a lot about it. I like lots of moments. I think things are really interesting. And I even kind of get the big picture that he's trying to do. But when you're watching it, you just don't feel it. There's no, like I keep complaining, there's no center. And maybe that's possible to do right, but I didn't do it right here. Too many things are a little too disparate and strange to really work together. Yeah, so seven for me too. I'm glad I watched it. I kind of want to see it again, honestly, just to like try and figure out what the fuck was going on, but it's i really wish i could describe the tone because it's just insane i don't know when i'm gonna want to see this again i know i will i just don't know what it will like take for me to want to put it in yeah i think it might just be something that this movie like lives in my head for a long time and then i'm just like D am i really remembering this correctly i'm gonna re-listen to this podcast and be like what are we talking about and then i'll go watch it again and be like oh okay now i'm i'm getting it a little bit better in terms of quality it and the lower depths are very comparable in a lot of ways, and I rated them the same. I kind of put this one right below the lower depths. I think the lower depths is a little bit more successful in what it does, but it's the same thing done a different way, which I find cool, and I think it has more visually going for it than the lower depths does, but I think the lower depths handles its lack of plot better than this one. Yeah, lower depths just feels a little more, like, focused or whatever, more coherent as a whole. 
Yeah, and also the fact that it's based on an actual play, more or less done the same way, it helps because it is more polished than this. I mean, even though it was a you know, published book and stuff, sure there are changes, I don't know them. It's hard to say. And again, Kurosawa's in a really weird spot, and I, like, I don't even know what we're really doing here next week. Listeners, never say that I am not a completionist, because we have tracked down Kurosawa's 1971 made-for-television documentary, although it is referred to as a quote-unquote visual poem, Song of the Horse. It's not very easy to track down. We are probably, definitely the only English podcast on Song of the Horse. (laughs) We'll leave you in suspense, but uh, check us out next week for Song of the Horse and whatever the hell we're going to talk about. Hell yeah.